Greetings. This is Kurt. Welcome to the first part of Book One. Please make yourself comfortable as we ignite the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments or questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com/theharkentheater. Unlike my wife's favorite morning beverage, that's spelled ko-fi.com/theharkentheater. Refer to episode descriptions for the exact address, our email, and our secure website, theharkentheater.com. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Prelude The Hostage Prince. Chapter 3 An Interesting Development Rothson sat back in his chair and rubbed his chin contemplatively, his green eyes twinkling. Frowning and blinking amidst the strange buzzing in his head and the distraction of his own thoughts, Paul managed to ask, In what way? The sensation of translating worlds was still fresh in his mind, and he was finding it difficult to believe he was anywhere other than in a dream, despite the corporeality of the world around him. After they had emerged from the misty gateway at the Circle of Stones, Marie had kept Bomalai at a dizzying gallop, the horror of the specters urging her fears into full sprint. Paul had hugged close to her, his teeth chattering from the intense cold. From where he sought unsteady warmth, he watched the land over which they rode and became more and more apprehensive at seeing no buildings, no streets, no signs, no indication of any civilization except for the dirt road Marie followed. Only vast stretches of grassy rolling hills, lush clumps of forest, and two suns shining in the clearest blue sky he had ever seen. At one point, Marie had veered sharply off the road and gone around an outcropping of rock and the trees, explaining she was avoiding a trap or some such. Other than that, she had said little else until they were safe within the fortress city's high walls. Just before reaching the city, she had stopped and given him her riding cloak, instructing him to cover his head, muttering about his presence being a secret or something and wanting to avoid questions. To hell with anybody else. What about my questions? He had gone from humoring the delusions of a strangely dressed girl to wondering if he was the one suffering from hallucinations. Where am I? 
Why am I here? And what is this sprawling stonewall fortress? The late morning hours following their arrival to the royal city had been full of faces, some noble, some common, some clean, many dirty and unshaven, but all of which appeared grim. From what Paul could tell, things were not well here. There was overcrowding in the streets, a majority of the raggedly garbed people looking like refugees, and an underlying stench of raw sewage in places. A feeling of dread hung in the air, as if everyone waited for some imminent disaster to strike. If not for the double suns blazing in the sky, he might have supposed he was somewhere in a third world country. Feeling overwhelmed and completely out of place, Paul's attempts at maintaining his mental coherence forced him to remain detached from his observations. Even now, he could remember only a little about the city itself, except for the incredible numbers of people packing the streets and alleys, and the lack of any machinery. And, intensifying his feeling of being an outsider, was the complete absence of anyone with dark skin, like himself. This can't be real. No such place truly exists. This has to be a dream. Or is it? Marie had dismounted before a stately three-story stone tower and keep, adorned with grotesques and friezes depicting legends under each row of windows. Rothson's chambers were located on the top floor. The enchanter smiled apologetically at him. Difficult to explain. You are what I expected, but perhaps a better way to put it is you are not what you expect. I have no idea what you're talking about. Precisely. Great. Paul rolled his eyes to the ceiling. I'll get no sense out of this fellow. Jesus, I feel weird. Rubbing his face with his hands, he glanced around the old man's chambers again, trying to find some anchor, some semblance of the reality he knew, or had once known. In any other circumstance, he might have considered this place quaintly authentic to a medieval setting. There were several wooden shelves lining the stone walls and a long desk heaped with metal hasped books and parchment scrolls with broken wax seals. Two or three glass goblets with a few drops of liquid in their bases accented the organized clutter with sparkles of color and sunlight reflecting from the westward window that overlooked the fortress city wall. Apparently, Rothson isn't too fastidious where his dirty dishes are concerned. An old gray cat was perched comfortably upon a stack of unrolled parchments in the center of the desk and gazed intelligently at Paul with its golden feline eyes, its front paws tucked neatly beneath itself. Remembering stories about wizards and their demon familiars made Paul feel uncomfortable, and he tried to politely ignore the cat, but was finding it difficult. The sensations you are experiencing are a side effect of the gateway, I'm afraid. Rothson's gaze wandered worriedly about the room. And this visitation by specters is most disturbing. Some line has been crossed, and the implication doesn't look pleasant. But you do know what I'm supposed to be. He was getting impatient. The enchanter tilted his head slightly as he stared back with an assessing expression. 
You are what you are, my friend. Now, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Look, all I know is this girl. He stood and pointed at Marie leaning casually against the wall near the window. Came beating on my door in the middle of the night, blithering some crap about needing to find help for a prince in trouble. I thought she was crazy, frankly. But being a sucker for a pretty face, I played along. Marie raised her eyebrows with interest at his backhanded compliment, but he ignored her. Now I feel like I'm the one who needs help. Rothson leaned back with crossed arms and frowned with interest at Paul's outburst. Okay, here I am in God only knows where, some dream or something. What am I supposed to do now? If you don't know, then I'm afraid there's nothing more we can do with you. Something has gone seriously wrong, this witnessed by the coming of specters. Just what are they, anyway? Paul noted that even the light of day couldn't take the edge off the cold fear their name invoked. Spectres are enforcers of the universal laws of balance binding all who exist in the worlds of the lower planes. They serve the two-headed god and are rarely seen, except during events that threaten the mystical equilibrium of the universe. What? do they do when this happens? Whatever is required to correct matters. His calm gaze held Paul's, including death to those who cause the imbalance. So you're saying that having me come here has thrown some mysterious scale out of kilter? And that I might end up dead? I doubt seriously you will come to any harm. He cast an indecipherable glance at Marie. As for myself and Marie, I don't know. Gateways are tricky things. In any case, things are not in their proper place somehow. I apologize sincerely for dragging you into our problems, which are no better off than when we started, and perhaps worse now. He rubbed his chin thoughtfully, then rose to his feet. We will take you back tomorrow morning when the gateways can be opened once again. Unspoken but clearly understood was Rothson's opinion that Paul's presence was a mistake, that he was the wrong individual for whom they sought. Tomorrow morning. Paul was stung by the implication that he was inadequate somehow. He wondered how long he had already been here, his time sense extremely distorted and the intermittent buzzing was getting more and more irritating, its intensity increasing to the point of drowning out all sound when someone was speaking directly to him, almost as if it tried to push him away from what he was experiencing. For the moment, we are burdened with our inability to find and rescue our crown prince before he faces execution at the hands of... He went quickly for a look, then rested a hand on Marie's shoulder. Well, Marie, Royal Guard, they're escorting a messenger from the battlefield. Yes, Lord. Something's afoot, my dear. Let's go find out. Perhaps it's good news. He turned to Paul. You are welcome to stay here or accompany us, though you will have to remain cloaked. Your unusual clothing and skin color would draw much unwanted attention. If too many people see you, we may be detained by the royal guard and would be unable to send you home right away. 
Oh, oh. Paul winced at the buzzing that washed through him, making the world around him seem more and more like a dream. I'll tag along if you don't mind. As you wish. An enormous throng of royal guards rushed through the streets, the citizens and refugees bustling out of their way. New word was out. The Grimms had announced their intention to sacrifice the hostage prince unless the king surrendered the realm and his people to subjugation under the chosen race, as they preferred to call themselves. The demand was preposterous, the western kingdom having originally suppressed the bloodthirsty reptiles many sun cycles past. But it pressed a further urgency on finding an alternative to the imminent chaos of a warring land without a king. Despite the historical struggle with the Grimms, there were always contenders for the throne in the event the unbroken succession of divinely anointed kings ended. Rothson and Marie exited the building with Paul in tow and proceeded to fight their way through the crowds, their ultimate destination unknown to Paul, who did his best to stay with them. In a crush of people, Paul's cloak got snagged on a passing woman's shoulder basket and, without warning, his hood was yanked back. When her hamper of goods toppled out of her flailing hands, she turned to protest the man's clumsiness, then froze at the sight of startled eyes in a black face looking back at her. In the next instant, Paul found himself standing alone over the fallen foodstuffs in a circle of staring faces. He looked about frantically for Rothson and Marie, but couldn't see beyond the gathering horde pressing in to get a look at him. He tried to move out and away, but there were too many. The air reeked of unwashed bodies and animal dung. There were hushed whispers of amazement, followed by accusations. He was a stranger, a spy, a grim assassin, a demon come to murder the king. At that moment, when Paul wondered if he was going to be torn to shreds by the vengeful mob, the buzzing had increased to such a high intensity amidst his panic that he felt he would either pass out or go suddenly mad and have to fight his way free. That was the last he could recall before finding himself running down and through the crowded streets, strangely unnoticed. The shouts of fright and amazement quickly fell behind, but he didn't stop until he had made it out of the city. Now he was standing alone on a grassy knoll with the heat of the suns burning down upon him. He glanced around and saw the curtain wall of the fortress city not too far behind him. This has to be a dream. And for the first time, Marie was absent from his side. This offered some degree of comfort as her continued doubtful glances had eroded what self-confidence he had left, if he had had any to start with. What am I doing here? For that matter, where is here? In the back of his mind, a thought wandered around asking if he was indeed within the conceivable realms of the existence commonly referred to as reality. An instinct for mental self-preservation continually tried to douse this nagging flicker, but to no avail. Ignoring it finally, Paul decided to act as if he was in a dream. But I am in a dream. He pounded his leg angrily with his fist. No, this is real? 
Am I real right now? His mind argued with itself, denying the flood of sensations bombarding his physical body. As much as he may have wanted to step into a dream to escape the problems of his everyday world, this dream scared him. Desolated by the dichotomy screaming in his head, Paul slumped to the ground amidst the stalks of wild wheat and held his head in his hands. After a few moments, a logical, scientific part of his intellect, in the guise of his physics professor, offered up a possible angle toward a solution. At the basis of all research, there has yet to be found a basic constant upon which all things can be measured with complete accuracy. All modes of measurement depend on the viewpoint of the one who is measuring, exampled by the cubit of ancient times that was based on the length of the presiding culture's collective forearm, and demonstrated in contemporary times by the complex task of having two individuals agree on the description of a simple color. Is it fire mist? Or is it white? Is it champagne or pale gold? Is it blue-green or is it green-blue? Simply put, there is no basis for reality, except in what is collectively agreed upon by all of us as real. Nah, that can't be right. The physics class he was taking had been in session for only a few weeks. The professor who had demonstrated this statement must not have revealed his conclusion yet. Or maybe there is no conclusion to be reached. There being no basis, no, no basis, no... Oh, God! Paul suddenly wanted to scream until he woke himself from his nightmare. Viewpoint, viewpoint. The voice viewpoint. pursued him relentlessly. Reality is only how you perceive it. Clenching his fists, he gasped air and restrained the urge to beat on his temples. Okay, okay. Let's look at this carefully. Marie is real. You know this because she was in your room. Rawson is, well, he's real, I suppose. But as to whether or not he's a wizard or whatever... Paul shook his head, knowing that just because Rothson didn't toss magic about like a cinematic Merlin didn't mean he was ineffectual or a fraud. Focus on what's tangible. Your clothes are real. Feel them. He felt the softness of the worn blue jeans under his fingers. The ground you're sitting on is real. More voices burned in his mental ears. These people expect something from you. I'm not ready for this. Whatever it is, I'm back in school and there's an exam today. I have no idea. I haven't studied. How do I do it? The dissonance made him want to panic again, to run. I don't belong here. I'm an intruder, an alien. God, please let me wake up. No! No! His gut hurt and his arms were numb, his anguish echoing back at him from the surrounding hills and moors as the dream of two suns in a blue sky glared down at him. Inhaling until his chest ached, he held his breath and shut his eyes. See nothing.
Wind soughing through the wheat surrounded him. Here, nothing. He covered his ears. The invigorating sensation of warm sunlight and cool breeze alternated over his body, bringing with it the scent of growing things and water. Feel nothing? Much as he tried, he could not shut off his senses. Like a non-swimmer dropped into the middle of an endless ocean, he felt he would drown in the wonder and beauty and simplicity around him. Wait a moment. Drown? An idea came to the fore of his screaming nerves. Survive. Even in dreams, you have to survive. In the water, you feel lighter, out of control, out of touch, lost, and surrounded by transparent pressure. Always, when learning about surviving in water, one first has to learn how to float. Still sitting in his clutched position, eyes and ears covered, Paul reviewed swimming survival techniques he had once taught to young children during the summers at the community pool near his home. Float, yes. Float and breathe. He rocked back and forth slowly, pulsing his movement with the gentle rhythm of the wind, swaying easily left and right. Gradually, his frightened mental voices silenced themselves. But it was a long time before he felt confident enough to lower his hands from his ears and dared to open his eyes. Now the pastoral setting before him seemed more inviting, offering promises of comfort and relaxation. His alarms were quiet now. Before him were miles and miles of unspoiled countryside, with rolling hills and tight copses of trees scattered here and there. Below and at a distance was the road following the shore, upon it bands of scruffy pilgrims, mostly families, carting or carrying their belongings, wearily marching their way to the gates and safety. Turning his head slowly, he could see a great lake's expanse reflecting the heavy puffs of white cloud overhead. Small waves lapped at the shore as waterfowl paddled lazily in the day's warmth. Just beyond was the outermost wall of the fortress city, its distant banners fluttering gaily, belying the stench, the crowds, and the panic contained within. He was beginning to puzzle over the presence of a pale red sun alongside a yellow sun. The hairs on his neck prickled with foreboding, and he stood up instinctively, fists at his side. The sense that something terrible was watching made him look around. Staring back was the faceless hood of a specter with its arms crossed over its chest. Stunned by the coldness radiating from the malevolent figure, absorbing the surrounding warmth, Paul could only gape in fright and confusion. He had escaped the specters on his world, only to be accosted by them here. What do you want? Silently, the specter uncrossed its arms, gripped its unhuman talons around the hilt of its curved sword, smoothly unsheathed the blade, and pointed to the sky with its other arm. Paul turned to dash down the side of the knoll, but was halted by a specter with sword drawn standing behind him. Then a third. He was blocked from escape. Sweat trickled down his brow as he faced the first specter again and waited to be struck down. Icy air embraced him like winter's cloak. 
Holding the sword at a cutting angle at its side, the Agent of the Dark One brought its free arm down to point at the western horizon. This is a violation of universal law. Your cries have been heard. You were given free choice, but were ignorant of the event. We will return you to your world and correct that which is unbalanced. The specter standing to Paul's right held out its talon. Touch, and you will be delivered from entanglement. Sensing Paul's lack of comprehension, you will be taken home, free of responsibility in this world. You will have no memory of the event. Paul was loath to step closer to any of the specters, let alone touch them, and though intimidated by their presence, he realized a challenge and something to question. Reality is only how I perceive it. I was just getting used to this place, and now these creatures come to spoil it. He was dismayed at the wavering in his voice. You aren't real. The lead specter swung its sword down and across and shortened several stalks of wild wheat in front of Paul, the point of the blade just missing his torso. You have made your choice, Fragment. You will not see another morning in this world. We return when the sisters end this day. Paul blinked and found himself alone again. He glanced about, wondering if he had indeed dreamed their presence, until he noticed the severed stalks of wheat at his feet. Shaken by the confrontation and disconcerted with the implied death threat, he sat down and wondered to which sisters the specter had referred, how they would end the day, and how he was supposed to help rescue this crown prince. With his stomach knotting from the stress of feeling completely out of control and having so many questions unanswered, he uprooted a bunch of wheat in his fist and threw it down the slope of the knoll. He shook his head to try and ward off the invisible insects when a familiar voice drifted over the hilltop. Lord? Disgruntled at being discovered, Paul sat in a sulk until Marie appeared from behind the hill her slim shadow darkening the wheat next to him. How are we supposed to keep track of you when you disappear like that? Pulling up a single tasseled stalk, Paul glanced at her silently, then stuck it in his mouth and began chewing while quietly wishing she would disappear. It was bad enough having specters lurking in the background with their unpleasant intentions without Marie scowling her doubt at him. After their arrival and subsequent discussion with Rothson, her overly respectful treatment of him had declined considerably, much to his relief. And yet her present irritation with him was almost as bad. Hell, it wasn't my fault you brought the wrong guy. He wanted to say, but didn't. When Marie realized he was not going to answer her, she shifted her pose and crossed her arms. I suppose there can be no telling with a demigod. Myth has it you tend to be moody. He glared darkly at her. Nearly being lynched can make anyone moody. I am sorry about what happened, Lord, but... And I'm not a demigod, so we should stop fawning over me and calling me Lord. If you're not the Prince of Light, then why did Spectres try to stop us? 
She has a point there. But he refused to concede to the erroneous conclusion that he possessed some sort of semi-divine status. Spectres are entities of her world, not mine. And if the great Rawson doesn't know what they're up to, then there's no way I can. Regardless, sweetheart, you can stuff the title and start calling me by my real name. It's Paul. He winced again as the buzzing increased as if berating him for his belligerency. Aghast, Marie's mouth worked silently as she sought a retort, her anger flaring in response to his. After a moment, however, she let it pass and sat next to him among the wild wheat. Are you able to help my countrymen or not? I think you just don't want to. Paul turned his head and met her gaze. He was immediately charmed by the vision of her intent expression, her hazel eyes framed by her brown hair, with stray wisps fluttering across her face. He had not seen the color of her eyes when she had come into his room. This is real for her. What is it? She saw his relief. Nothing. Just some discomfort going away. I wasn't aware you were in pain. I'll be all right. He wagged his hand at her. Dream or not, he may as well do something, because doing nothing brought specters. Your people and your prince are in greater need than I. Do you have a sister? No. Why? Didn't think it'd be that easy. Nothing. Deciding not to tell her about the visitation from the specters, he stood and brushed dirt from his pants. Where's the old man? Her mood chilled somewhat at his derogatory referral to the master enchanter. Rothson is with the Council of Speakers, seeing what plans they are making in the event the prince dies. He crossed his arms and surveyed the area. So, that just leaves you and me to find him. Find who? Your crown prince, of course. Marie stood and stared at him. Are you saying you want to help us now? Warmed by the reluctant spark of hope in her eyes, he nodded. After all the effort expended by her and Rothson and Bomali, the least he could do was try, even if this was nothing more than an elaborate illusion. Besides, he wanted to feel special again, like he had when he first met her at his door. She tilted her head with curiosity and skepticism. What changed your mind? He almost smiled. You did. She was startled at his reply and blinked in befuddlement. So, first, tell me where you and Rawson believe your prince is being held hostage. She pointed to the northern horizon lined with sharp snow-capped peaks. The White Mountains are the last stronghold of the Grams. Paul looked northward with interest. White Mountains? I've been to the Smokies on the Blue Ridge, up on Grandfather, Mount Mitchell, Mount Hood. Seen most of the southern Appalachians, but I've never heard of any called White... Wait! New Hampshire. He turned to see Marie watching him with mild amazement and immediately realized what he had been trying to do. Excuse me, please. I'm feeling lost at the moment, being here and all. I was... never mind. So what we need to do is check out these mountains and find your prince, right? Her eyes wandered for a moment. This is very well, I suppose, but how will you do it? 
Since the Grim tribes have joined together as one, our best soldiers can't get through their outer defenses without heavy losses, let alone find their camps hidden in the mountains. Until the situation with the prince is resolved by his death or his rescue, we are at a stalemate with them. Paul stared at Marie with the realization that he had no idea whatsoever how he was supposed to do this feat of rescue in a world he had never imagined existed. Both Rothson and Marie called him the Prince of Light, yet there was nothing of which he was aware that set him apart from anyone else in this land except for his skin color. Perhaps there was something he was missing. This will seem silly, but could you tell me, talk to me about me? Her confusion made him elaborate. I don't mean to sound like an egotist, but someone decided to bring me here. You call me a demigod, the prince of light. I don't know what that means. You expect me to produce a miracle of some sort. I don't know exactly how. You mentioned myths about this demigod. Would you tell me about them? I, um, I feel awkward doing this because it's so much like telling someone gossip about themselves. Okay, okay. Whether I'm this demigod of yours or not doesn't matter. Pretend I'm just a guy named Paul, not the Prince of Light. She was momentarily distracted by the light skin of his palms that contrasted with his body, and she wondered if this resulted from being able to create light. Catching herself from staring blatantly... Are you sure? It may be the only way I can figure out how to help you. Well, I know only a little. You were... I mean, the Prince of Light was... Historically, a benevolent being that offered his alliance with our forefathers on the land of the ancients, our original homeland, many sun cycles passed before the great holocaust that forced our people to migrate to this continent. A benevolent being? What sort of being? What made him different? Marie shrugged. All I know is that you, he, was able to assume the form of a giant bird of prey. She stopped upon seeing Paul's eyes widen. Me? He spun around to stand with his back to her, his imagination roaring to life as her description shook him to the very core of his awareness. Many times, uncounted days had slipped by while he entertained desires to feel the glory and freedom of the great raptors that he studied and photographed with such devotion. Maybe there was a secret purpose behind his obsession that had led to overdue library book fines in the tens of dollars for raptor picture books and all his free vacation time spent bird watching and photographing and nights lost dreaming about flying. One time in particular rang out in his memory. A night of loneliness and lost love when he had been standing on the large sculptures of cubed concrete given to the school where he studied. The faint racket of merriment in the nearby student commons had added to his gloom, and at that moment, more than ever, he had wished he could simply fly away. He had even prepared to jump off the highest part of the sculpture with his eyes shut in hopes of not hitting the ground fifteen feet below. 
Fortunately, people had exited the commons, depriving him of the privacy to immolate himself. Even though he had been in a severe depression at the time, part of his mind clutched greedily to a strange certainty of what might have been. I know I could have flown that night if I hadn't been interrupted. And yet, since then, he had not had the courage, or the desperation, to try again. Now he was in a different reality, where different things were possible. Suddenly he was afraid the specters would appear and spoil the magic of this moment. Without another second to weigh possibilities or doubts, Paul ran down the hillside into the wind and spread his arms wide to welcome the suns. Then he jumped. For an instant, Paul could almost see what could be nothing other than an explosion of light in the dark confusion of his mind. This is forbidden. He fell back down in a sprawl and tasted dirt. And yet, his disappointment was immediately doused by logic. He must have some ability or power, else the specter wouldn't have intervened. Anger came close on the heels of reason. Spitting his rage at being so close to that which he ultimately desired, he ignored Marie behind him as he stood and shouted to the sky, It is mine! The vaporous form of a specter appeared and wavered before him, its sword drawn and pointed at him. Forbidden! You can't stop me! Knowing that if they had the power to stop him, they would have done so already, Paul leaped at the thing. A sharp, icy point cut through his gut, but his momentum carried him further forward, and the ghost faded away, its transparent blade vanishing. Forbidden! The pain in his gut worsened, but his desire was stronger than his fear. He thrust himself through their psychic wall of resistance. With his eyes shut, he tore his way down the hillside, running as fast as he could, running from the pain, the world around him, and denying everything except his one obsession. To fly! A brilliant nova of light flowered before his mind's eye, in tandem with the growing stab in his stomach. The razor-sharp point became hot and seared his nerves. It is not for you, not for you. Again, he jumped and flailed. Furious, he dug his fingers into the earth, feeling the cool dirt lodge under his fingernails. He knew for certain that he was being blocked from his greatest desire, remembering a great school softball game in which he was not allowed to play because he was believed to be a clumsy athlete. His boredom after an eternity of school games in the outfield had led to carelessness, and his inability to do chin-ups or rope climbing successfully in P.E. had contributed to a reputation among his peers for weakness to the point of his earning the nickname Pull whenever he was obliged to struggle on the horizontal bar or pull on the rope. When the teacher told him to forget it, nobody wanted Pull on their team anymore, not even for the outfield. He struggled with tears and anger. In that moment, a player's bat cracked against a ball, and if for nothing else than to vent his frustration, Paul ran away from the teacher and the rejection, flown on his feet. He raced the soaring ball into the outfield and, as it fell out of the sky, caught it in his bare hands ahead of any gloved outfielder. 
inner will triumphing over outer denial. Overwhelmed with the same feelings, he hauled out clumps of dirt and flung them furiously in all directions, then scrambled to his feet and ran as fast as his feet would carry him. Forbidden! I defy you! Paul leaped as high as he could, willing every atom of his being to reach, to grab, to tear at this invisible ball. And suddenly something was there, a feeling, an instinct, a sensation beyond mere thought, with more than the power of a simple realization. He possessed an ability. This time he reached up and pulled with all his might. White fire exploded out from his plexus, consuming his body in a flash flood of annihilation. In agony, he opened his mouth to shriek, but his voice would not respond. His physical body turned to ashes as his consciousness plummeted into a void. The obsession that had driven him now left him. Terrified and wishing he could scream for help, he knew nothing could stop what he had started. Marie was halfway down the slope, running to see what she might be able to do, but became frustrated as he ignored her and shouted furiously at the sky. It is mine! When he got up from his stumble and kept going, she stopped to watch with confusion and rising anger. Paul is running away or is demented. You can't stop me! He fell again. Now he'll stop. But no, he threw dirt like a madman, stood up, and started running again, his head lolling back insanely as he reached arms skyward to the clouds. I defy you! The startling blaze of white bursting out from the running figure instantly blinded her. Stunned, she shielded her eyes. When her vision readjusted, she blinked at her surroundings, turning her head this way and that, but found no sign of the dark-skinned demigod among the wheat-covered hills. Atoms of light kindled in the blackness around him. The void that had consumed him took shape and twisted with layers of gray and black until it became a tunnel. A glow in the far distance beckoned to him. Flickering tendrils of fire tickled his keen eyes and caressed his shifting body, giving him form. With powerful arms that were now wings, he shot out of spinning night into day. A shadow blocked the suns for an instant. Marie looked up to see a giant eagle spreading its wings to the winds. Her mouth hung open and she stood motionless, astonished and awed, as the ancient myth breathed life before her. Beating its wings furiously, then easing them out to their full spread, the Thunderbird soared and glided to swift heights. From behind, Marie heard the watchguards on the city wall, then silence as they too stared in amazement. Spiraling upward for a moment only, the eagle tucked back his wings and dove before the ground. Before she realized it, Marie was buffeted by huge gusts of wind as it lighted upon the hilltop behind her, settled upon its taloned feet, and folded its wings in a flutter of golden brown feathers. 
The raptor's size was exceptional, equal to that of a warhorse, its powerful talons large enough to grasp a full-grown man. Against her better judgment, she made her way to just beneath its head and, after a moment's apprehension, dared to speak to it. My lord? Too late she remembered his preferred name. The giant bird of prey cocked its head as it regarded her first with one gold eye, then the other, its throat undulating in apparent thoughtfulness. Uncomfortable with the idea of that razor-sharp hooked beak snapping her in two, Marie was suddenly afraid that the man's consciousness and this creature's were not one and the same. She started to back away slowly. Paul, is this you? The eagle closed an eye, as if winking, then vanished in a brilliant flash of white. Air rushed around Marie to fill the space left behind as Paul, his chest heaving from exertion, stood before her with a broad grin. Sorry I took so long, but it takes a lot of mental energy to switch back. He held a hand to his stomach. Boy, is that spot sore. Then that was you? Yes! Thank God, yes! It's exactly what I've always wanted to do. Marie couldn't help but smile at his euphoria, pleased to see him this way for once. He stood with hands on his hips. I believe I am now able to help your prince. Where exactly shall I go? Conceiving an idea based on his altar form's size, she grabbed his hand and pulled him down the hillside on her way back to the city. Let's try something first. Doom, Part 1, Prelude, The Hostage Prince. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Prelude are performed by Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and sequels of the Quintology are available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Soral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.